Hey, everybody. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a quick, it's really quite fun for me to, to put on my side, I put it on gallery, and I just do a quick little click through. Um, it's just really nice for me to see um, you all, so I realize I'm not just talking to this silly screen. So it actually means a lot. Thank you. Oh, thanks for all the nice warm waves. That's great. Wow, what fun. Yeah, week 10, can you believe it? It's just clicking along, amazing. And uh, I will continue to play around with these offerings as long as you all are there. So I groove on it. I have to say I really enjoy it. Um, so a couple little housekeeping things. I am doing my last official teaching gig this coming weekend. I tried like the Dickens to get out of it because um, I'm a little bit, I, I added up my hours roughly about since the start of this COVID thing, which it's just been great. All the tremendous opportunities to present things and these kind of emergency courses and things I'm doing. And I actually counted up over a hundred hours of presentation. And so I'm getting pretty sick and tired of listening to myself. But all joking aside, I have this, this weekend coming up. It's my last one for a while. Um, this one is at Shambhala Mountain Center, where I, lo I love to work with them. They're just the best. And this one's a very gritty, hands-on, practical. It's a new program. I actually have not taught this one before, so I had to create it. Um, uh, working with anxiety and fear in an uncertain world. Um, and I'm also throwing in the word anger now. <clears throat> and so what I will be doing is fundamentally taking each one of those words. I, when I was structuring the course, I said, well, how do I want to do this? I'm going to take each one of those words and unpack it. What does it mean to work with it? Um, what exactly is anxiety? What exactly is fear? What exactly is anger? And so the reason I mentioned this is that I, literally just within the last hour, I was able to get SMC to agree to have tomorrow's opening talk be free uh, and available to anybody. Um, and so because we just got that information, I don't have that link yet. They won't have it for me until tomorrow. So what you can do two things. Um, you can email me, and let me give you that address. It's uh, Andrew H, A-N-D-R-E-W-H, Andrew H, at andrewholacek.com. Last name, of course, is H-O-L-E-C-E-K.com. And I can send you the link when I get it. Um, the next thing is tomorrow, probably around noon, I think they're thinking um, that that link will be available on their site. But uh, we don't have it ready for you today, um, so I can't give it to you. But I thought what we would do, uh, it's always a good thing, certainly for me, to just take, take a one breath meditation session um, to realize that what we're doing here is perhaps different from other types of podcasts and the like because we're trying to discuss things from a more contemplative meditative perspective. And um, starting with one breath meditation, I think is a really good thing to do. So we'll start with one breath. Remember, one meditation session. You can complete your meditation session for today. <laughs> one complete presence, um, full participation with one inhalation and one exhalation. So here we go, or don't go.
Fantastic. I love it. Immediate kind of emergency practice session that, again, this, I did not make this up. This comes from my teacher, Kempo Tsotram, Gyamso Rinpoche, and his Mahamudra teachings. It's a very interesting kind of uh, expansion of the meditative agenda in these so-called advanced traditions where <clears throat> long sessions are obviously tremendously important, but um, short sessions repeated frequently are really in many ways characteristic of some of these higher stage practices. Um, and so it's also a wonderful way within the context of one breath to unwind, to unwind and, and make contact with your body um, because that's where reality takes place, right? Um, everything that takes place up here, not so real, not so real. Um, and in fact, Josh Billings, I don't know if I shared this quote with you. I finally tracked down the origin. I used to think it was due to Mark Twain. There's so much stuff out there, these misattributions. And, and I, I've got busted a couple of times um, by not doing enough homework. I see something, I track it down once or twice. And then somebody will tell me, hey, that's not right. Or I'll find later, oh my gosh, that was a misattribution. So this one actually comes from an 18th century humorist. His name was Josh Billings. And it's fantastic. It's literally, he says, some of the worst things in my life never actually happened. I mean, that's just brilliant. It's just basically living in our heads and not in reality. So the other thing we can do to recontextualize our little session is again within that larger context like we did last week with Arthur and Joe and Myra is um, raise our gaze to realize you know, how much of the world is on fire. It's amazing. Um, the Buddha actually taught what's called a fire sutra. And maybe next time I'll bring in this really powerful kind of um, aspect of that uh, sutra, which these days is taking on some real um, literal applications with global warming, with everything that's happening. So maybe we can do uh, a one breath Tonglin session, remember sending and taking for George Floyd, for all the people that continue to suffer from injustice. And so that we realize what we're doing here doesn't get too precious. You know, it's one of the near enemies of spiritual practice, almost by, in fact, by definition, spiritual, the word spiritual is put in contrast to material. Well, that contrast sometimes becomes, it's not just opposite to material, sometimes it's, it's an opposition to material. And, and people very often, me included for the longest time, think that spirituality is somehow about just FedExing to heaven um, Almas, the great physicist turned uh, psychologist, spiritual teacher, teacher A.H. Almas, really beautifully once said, you know, when most people set out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven. We just want out. And because we associate the material with suffering, we want out of the material. And so therefore, if we don't bring the material with us, if we don't bring form with us as we progress on the path, our realization becomes disembodied, disconnected, incomplete. And I remember, I remember Ken Wilber, Ken Wilber shared the story with me. He said he, he, he was listening or some, I can't remember how he got it, but someone um, conveyed to him that, you know, I'm not, I don't really care about what's happening in the world right now. You know, when I die, I'm going to the Pure Lands. It's like, what? I mean, what kind of a spirituality is that? So I, I personally think it's really, really important especially now that our spiritual practice is embodied. You know, 
meditation itself is not the end. The final product is, is so to speak, enlightened activity born from our meditation, born from our study. And so I say that because it's super easy to, to get a little bit too removed, spiritually bypassed, too precious. You know, our spiritual path just becomes so precious. And I invite you to look at, at your own, own, own motivation, you know, when you go into retreat, when you work on your spiritual business. I mean, are you really doing it for the benefit of others? Or how much of it is just escape? Um, so with that said, we'll do a one breath Tong Lin. With, with the inhalation, we bring in the suffering of George Floyd and then everybody else. And then with one exhalation, we just radiate out a sense of sanity and goodness. So we can do that as well. One breath Tong Lin. That's awesome. I'm doing both of these practices a lot these days. Every time I hear something that's difficult, one breath Tonglin, one breath meditation really helps. So what we do with these sessions is, you know, is I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a little riff, then most of what we do is Q&A, um, which makes it really enjoyable for me because that, that's by far my favorite part. But I do wanna say something about a topic this is a little bit of a lead magnet, um, as they say in the marketing world, for a topic I'm going to unfold in, in great detail this coming weekend. But I do want to say something about it here because it, it has vast applicability to what's happening now with the virus, with all the, the protests, with everything, with this world on fire. I want to just say a few words about samskaras, S-A-M-S-K-A-R-A, -A -A, samskara. It's a really incredibly important term um, in the wisdom traditions, not, not just Buddhism, but also non-dual traditions like um, Kashmir Shaivism, Shaiva Tantra. And so I actually want to say something a little bit about how this term applies um, from the Shaiva Tantra tradition. They have a slightly different angle on it than the Buddhists do. And so the idea here is that it, fundamentally, if we are unable to work with difficult circumstances, um, difficult experiences, difficult situations. If we're unable to stay fully embodied and present with these things, what tends to happen is the energy of the situation as it's received with us doesn't pass through us freely. Um, it gets kind of constipated, it gets stuck, it leaves a trace. If we can learn to stay open, open, um, the Buddhas are the open ones. My favorite definition, as you've heard, I think, from me of meditation is habituation to openness. If we can stay open, a, mar a mind and heart so big that we can receive anything um, and feel it completely without giving it a place to land, without appropriating it, without grasping it, without pushing it away. If we can do that, um, no karma is created. Karma is created when these samskaras come into play. Um, and so there's a beautiful, and I'll, I'll say a lot about that, but there's a beautiful reference from Trungpa Rinpoche in the um, Sadhana of Mahamudra. So this is my desert island liturgy. If I only had 
one liturgy I could take with me to a desert island, this would be it. The Sadhana Mahamudra is amazing, amazing poem. It's just, it's a masterpiece. And so in part of the liturgy, um, it says good and bad, happy and sad, all thoughts vanish into emptiness, like the imprint of a bird in the sky. Of course, birds don't leave imprints in the sky. So we can rephrase this, good and bad, happy and sad, all experiences vanish into emptiness, into openness, like the imprint of a bird in the sky, leaving no trace, living completely purely. It, and this, this connects deeply to what I've mentioned several times is brilliant statement from Suzuki Roshi that, you know, we, we should live our lives like good bonfires. We shouldn't be smoky fires. We should cremate, this is my riff on it, we should cremate our experience as we live it by living it fully. That's not terribly difficult to do when things are really going well. Um, not so easy to do when what we have to ingest, digest, and metabolize is bitter, painful, unwanted like what's happening now. So what this alludes to is super important, is that really the spiritual traditions invite the necessity, if you really wanna wake up and clean up your act, clean up your samskaras, clean up your habits, your karmas, you have to be able to be open and stay with really difficult situations like everything that's happening now. Because if we don't, we're planting these seeds deep within us that will sprout, sprout later, and in particular, we're concentrating, contracting, and creating these kind of psychic cysts. Um, and this is really the way the, the non-dual Shaiva Tantra tradition refers to samskaras. Fundamentally, in popular psychological jargon, you've heard it, what you resist persists. What you resist persists. Um, so in the, in the non-dual Shaiva Tantra tradition, Samskaras are uh, defined as impressions, um, more specifically deposited impressions. And the idea here is that whenever we turn away from experience, whenever in the Bardo Yoga tradition, whenever the lights are too bright, whenever we can't stay with the bright lights of reality, which usually means unwanted experience, whenever we turn away from what's happening, these, this, this kind of rejection, refusal of experience kind of creates this unfinished energy pattern, this impression or not that literally, and this is where it becomes really interesting for uh, people who do inner yoga practices, who work with the subtle body, because this type of kind of refusal of experience or rejection of experience, it's not just purely psychological. It's also physiological in, in the workings of the subtle body altogether. And I, I riff on this with a kind of a double play on the word not. Um, and the play here is that um, all the times we say N-O-T, no, all the times we say no to unwanted experience, that type of not eventually transforms into a K-N-O-T, a not. And those knots literally create the, the uh, constrictors of our subtle body. If you were to somehow take a, a magical x-ray or fMRI of a Buddha, awakened one, 
you would find a subtle body anatomy and physiology with really clear, supple, straight channels, no knots, no, no nothing constricting them. And then the winds flow throughly and everything is just really easy and graceful and, and uh, open. If you were to take a, an x-ray of a confused sentient being like me, I'm, I'm the archetype of a confused sentient being, you would find these channels all constricted and crinkled and tied off, kind of like knotted up wax paper. And therefore the winds don't flow throughly, the winds are pinging all over, everything is all tied up, we feel it as this kind of contraction. And so these knots then block the flow of life force energy, of prana, lung, chi, whatever you wanna call it, gets all kind of tied up and constipated literally within our inner subtle body network. And so then what we do, what spiritual practice comprises both um, the physical inner yogas where you do movements and all kinds of things, some of which are quite wrathful, really. Some of these movements are really quite rigorous as a way to kind of, you know, wrathfully untie these knots. But even if you don't do that, your general spiritual practice also works this way because mind and body are, are they're not two, they're non-dual, they're not separate what you do with your mind works with your body. So you're working with these subtle body knots and channels, whether you know it or not. The inner yogas just target that subtle body very directly. So what happens with these samskaras is these samskaras, um, in, in the Tibetan word uh, usage, they're connected to uh, karmic seeds, bijas, B-I-J-A-S. They lay dormant within us. Um, until the conditions are right. And then when a particular circumstance arises that somehow resembles the circumstance in which the initial seed or samskara was placed, that samskara, that seed is suddenly activated and surfaces as a type of emotional reactivity. And so the way this starts to get really practical and really interesting is that we spend the vast majority of our lives really having reactions to circumstances and situations that are actually disproportionate, disproportionate to the situation. So in other words, when something arises, especially if it's unwanted, you're not only reacting to that particular immediate, um, what Whitehead called presentational immediacy, not only are you reacting to that, but you're unconsciously reacting to your previous reactions. And so therefore we don't see the present moment freshly. The present moment is already laden with these stains. And so really more often than not, until we get pretty processed and cleaned up, we're actually reacting more to the undigested past than to the present. We're constantly projecting the past onto the present moment without even knowing it. And therefore really complicating the present moment. In a, in a really kind of gritty application here, you know, I, I work with hospice, I work with death and dying, I work with grief. There's a, a really particular difficult type of grief. And some of you who are psychologists and hospice workers know this, it's literally called complicated grief. And one of the reasons it's so bloody complicated, and I've noticed this in my own experience, if there's too much death and destruction too quickly, if I don't have enough time to digest, metabolize, um, and process the information, then the, the accumulation of these insults becomes um, 
uh, almost exponential and things get really complicated. And so the way this translates in, in terms of grief, if you haven't digested, processed, worked through a previous loss and another one comes in either too soon or you haven't released the previous one, that new grief becomes really complicated because not only are you trying to work with that, but you still have all this unresolved stuff in the past. And that's what creates really complex grief where not only do you have to tease apart what's happening now, you have to somehow metabolize, digest what happened earlier. Um, and this really constitutes a huge part of the whole, the whole spiritual path. One of my favorite, I use this quotation all the time from James Joyce, I love this author. History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake, history. In this case, literally his story, her story that fundamentally, um, really, the world is made of stories, our stories, our versions. The world is made literally of samskaras. That's the kind of the applied samskara is the inability to stay with what's happening, which usually means our inability to stay with the, sens the sensation in our body and how we FedEx out of our body and into our storylines, literally thereby constructing our versions of reality which are based on our, our projections, all our imputations that are generative or generated by these unprocessed psychic cysts, these samskaras. So here's, where, here's how we can work with this. Every time you have um, some kind of reactive relationship, every time you're contracted, every time you're triggered, and here's, here's one way to play with this. Whenever, this is a, a general maxim that has to do with um, projection altogether that, that's worth throwing into the mix for you to work with. I find this to be super helpful. Whenever you're affected more than you're informed, whenever you're affected by something more than you're informed by something, you're probably dealing with a samskara and a, and a projection. And if you just look at that maxim, it's like, oh my goodness gracious, I'm affected by everything. So this just shows us how, you know, these samskaras, they, they are fundamentally our makers. So whenever you feel triggered, reactive, instead of informed by what's happening, a samskara is being activated. Whenever you feel one of my favorite archetypes, a contraction, Actually, uh, this kind of internal contraction that refers, if you pay really close attention, if you're really sensitive to your, to your reactivities, you will actually find that contraction is referring the experience back to you, to something. It's referring the experience back to a samskara. And that's where the reactivity is born. So once we become sensitized to this, through this view, through literally becoming sensitized to the visceral sensation of contraction, we can then use that as a marker. Hey, some scar at work here, contraction at work here. And then, well, what do you do with that? Well, on, a, on one level, you don't do anything. That's kind of what makes it hard. You just simply stay with that feeling. You stay with the body. The practice is not to feed the storyline. That's what created the samskara in the first place. That's what's going to propagate and recycle the samskara. That's the narrative you want to, to cut. <clears throat> and then you just simply stay, <coughs> excuse me, you simply stay with that intense experience. 
And so that's what, that's the invitation now when we've got this unbelievably painful, difficult world situation. The, the challenge invitation for spiritual practitioners is to have a mind and heart open enough, big enough, where we can be with these, uh, these processes, allow them to propel us in the proper direction for enlightened activity. But um, notice how they tend to throw us into uh, reactive, um, inappropriate relationships, and therefore karmic generators, more samskaras. So the practice is you stay with that. You, you kind of purify, cremate the unwanted experience by just being with it. And of course, this is now you can see why it's hard and why spiritual traditions are called warrior traditions, because who wants to stay with unwanted experience? Who wants to stay feeling crappy? Nobody does. And so we go to our infinite distraction therapies, the entertainment industry, the drug industry, the sex industry, the whatever, to keep us away from these unwanted experiences. And so the invitation for practitioners is literally digest the energy by staying with it. In, in Sanskrit, it's called alamgrasa. It's like you, you want to devour the experience. Not so easy to devour things when they're bitter, when they don't taste good, right? You just want to, ah, I'm not going to go there. If you don't do that, well, guess what happens? You're going to get, it's going to get buried yet again in this endless kind of, you know, confused samsaric recycling process <laughs> where you're going to do the same thing you did the first time. You're going to reject it again. You're going to refuse it again. You're going to react against it again. Not only does that keep the samskara alive, it continues to add to it. And this is why the traditions say, not in some kind of you know, fire and brimstone way, that, that um, samsara will never end until this karmic generating process is brought to the light of consciousness and worked with. And unfortunately, and this is why I wrote my first book, Power and Pain, unfortunately what this means is that in order to really wake up, we in fact have to allow, make room for, and accommodate all these unwanted experiences that really constitute our very sense of self and character. And this is why, you know, again, the master of the one liner, Trungpa Rinpoche, famously said meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. It's a laxative to allow all this, pardon my French, all this shit to come up all this, some scars to come up. And then we have this really precious opportunity to do what? Relate to them properly. Relate to them properly. And so if you're a deep spiritual diver, maybe you've already noticed this. All kinds of stuff breaks loose when you do deep spiritual practice. Pandora's box is, is opened in a very real way. And this is before, you know, what, before you, um, signed on to the spiritual path, you should have got your spiritual lawyer to look very closely at that contract because in the very fine print, it says, you know, paren, really small print, double asterisk, way down at the bottom of the page. Psst, you're asking for it. Do you know that? <laughs> and so on a very real way, you're asking for it. Really, you're asking for it. Um, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Don't complain about it. Remember, that's why we had our complaint meditation. We offered this nine weeks ago, remember? Let's do that real quick. Whenever you feel the urge to complain, what do you do? 
whenever you feel the urge to complain, ask yourself, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? That's a samskara coming up. What am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then what do you do? You stay with that feeling. You wake down. You wake down into your body because your body can process this. Your body is the crucible for this transformation. Your body knows what to do with it. So um, this stuff is super, super important to me. Um, and by the way, the really good news about this, also you may have noticed this, because it's not all bad news, there's a tremendous good news here, is that the more you work with these knots, the more you release these um, constricted energies and winds, guess what happens? That energy that initially was not allowed to flow through you and that was dammed up and constipated, now that energy is liberated. And you will find yourself literally more energized, lighter, freer, not metaphorically, literally. When those winds are open, the channels are open, the chakras are opened, the wind starts to flow through you. You enter psychologically, one aspect of this kind of colloquially is, is the zone, the flow state, where you just feel like you're in resonance with things. Things are just flowing through you. In tantric language, it's called entering the action. Um, and so this is really, this is the good news behind it. You work with this stuff, it ain't easy. It's no day at the beach, but this is what you ask for. This is what the situation is presenting. And so um, once again, it's a tremendous opportunity what's happening now, with, if we can relate to it properly. Um, and with this view, with the practices that support this view, we can, you know, without being patronizing, you can use this extraordinary set of obstacles as an opportunistic way, as a way to really work with these energies. Um, so there's more to say, but I think that's enough. Oh yeah, definitely, I hit the half hour mark. So I wanted to throw that out there for you because the, this usage of the word samskara is not, again, for Buddhists, this is not the way Buddhists generally use this term. The Buddhist approach is what I'm gonna riff on this weekend. Um, in that context, and I'll throw this as a little teaser for that. When you die, when you die, um, uh, this is my playful lingo on this, you will meet your maker. Absolutely. When you die, you will meet your maker. Your maker are these samskaras. This is in the Buddhist tradition. The, the, the samskaras are literally characterological structure. It's who you are, it's who you think you are. And so when everything that falls away and, and, and we die, um, and all these kind of distraction therapies are pulled away, fundamentally, you will meet your maker. And that maker, if you don't relate to it, it, you, if you don't relate to your um, kind of revealed unconscious mind directly, those habits, those propensities, will then literally make your entire next life. So not only do these samskaras dictate how we operate moment to moment, right here and right now, they dictate the rebirth process altogether, if you believe in this sort of thing. In Bardo Yoga, the samskaras are a hugely important topic because they are the ones in the karmic Bardo becoming 
they're the ones that literally hurl us involuntarily into one's entire next life, if that speaks to you. So anyway, with that said, um, usually what we do now is we open it up. I think Andy has at least one pre-sent question, and then we open it up to you all for comments. Comments, offerings, challenges, if I said something that doesn't speak to you, I love getting in that kind of dialogue. So please. Um, first thing was there have been quite a few questions to come in about the, the course that you mentioned in the onset. Um, that you're doing this weekend will be recorded? No, this, this, this course will not be recorded um, for a number of reasons. However, let me, let me say this. If you write to me and you say, oh, I really want to take this course, I will find a way to record it for you. Um, but it, generally, I don't record um, these types of events. But um, there would be a way, if that's helpful to you, where I, I could probably do that and make it available for you. So when you write to me, let me know, yeah, I really want to do this or whatever, but I can't. Is this going to be recorded? And then maybe I can find a way to get it done. So thanks, thanks for asking. Yeah, and, and how about a start time? Was there a start time for that this week? Oh, yikes. Yeah, uh, pretty obvious. Maybe, Andy, can you pull that up while I'm, I'm continuing to riff? Can you do that for me, my friend? Um, sure. Go to the SMC site, it's online course. I think it's 6.30, 6.30 or 7 tomorrow, but maybe you could confirm that for me. Can you do that? Yeah, I'll do that and I'll post it in the chat. Oh, Prem. Oh, Prem just saves me all the time. 6.30. She's the best. Thank you, dear. Just saw that Great. pop up. All right. Well, I'll start then with the... Uh... Prem is my guardian angel. Totally. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, here's the first writing question. Okay. I wake up at 4 a.m. practically every morning now, unless I choose to go back to sleep. When I wake up, there is an incredible pure clarity present. No disturbance, no remembrance of anything. Calm like a lake. Sometimes I write things as I feel like I can do what I want to do. There is a vast spaciousness with room to think. I can see thoughts being born. Other times I meditate. Sometimes I roll over and go to bed. I haven't seen anything in your materials, books, webinars about it. What is this and why? Yeah, beautiful. First of all, good for you. That's awesome. It's a form of shamatha. Shamatha is, uh, and again, this is the great gift of these wisdom traditions. You know, they, they have so much explanatory power because, you know, these, these uh, like with Bob Thurman, he talked about them as psychonauts. I love that term, psychonauts. The intrepid explorers of the heart-mind vast uh, articulate um, kind of description of um, experience. And so this to me, especially it's interesting when you use the word pool, tranquil pool, that's a classic description of shamatha. Shamatha, Sanskrit word these days, somewhat associated with mindfulness, but literally means quiescence, tranquility. And um, very often they, the, the tradition talks about the beauty um, of shamatha's pool. And so the stages of shamatha go, there are nine stages, um, and some of the middling and, and especially the higher levels of stages are extraordinarily blissful. There, it really is, like you said, it's just like, you're just like hanging out, and you are not hanging out, you just become this completely mirror-like, placid, quiescent, open space. It's beautiful, it's fantastic. So that's sure as heck what it sounds like. And it's, a, it's what's called a temporary experience, which is great, a nyam, it's fantastic. Um, and then the question is, well, what to do about it? Well, first of all, do exactly what you're doing. Bathe in that pool, right? Celebrate it. 
it's fantastic. Um, creativity, all kinds, all the things you're doing, fantastic, celebrate that. But then perhaps you may want to work with, okay, well, can I do more with it? For sure. Then you engage in, in you know, like formal daytime shamatha, work through the nine stages. And there's so many books on this. Probably my favorite one is The Attention Revolution by Alan, my friend B. Alan Wallace. This is a really good book on the nine stages of shamatha. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind. So if you really want to explore this, read Alan's book. And then eventually, you know, is, and this is a really good segue to a, a really important point. As beautiful as this experience is, either at night when the mind is completely settled, the winds haven't started, you know, you've probably recently come out of deep formless, dreamless sleep where there's fundamentally no wind, no movement. You're transitioning from that into the waking state. That tranquility of the formless state continues. That makes total sense. I often feel this in the morning as well. Before, you know, the gotta do's come in, right? The gotta do's. Before the engines start to wind, wind up and blow, you're in this really beautiful tranquil space. Um, but there's a subtle trap here because it feels so good. It's like, oh, I just want more of that. Well, it's good enough to, to want more of that, but don't become attached to it. And realize that that in itself is not liberation. That's not liberation, that's pacification. The real liberation comes from the next phase, which I won't go into, but just so you know where you can go with it, that's called insight meditation or vipassana. Vipassana is what liberates. Shamatha will not liberate. In fact, shamatha can trap because it feels so good. It feels so spiritual. This is what it's supposed to be about. Well, partly. It's not about feeling good. It's about, like I mentioned, it's about getting real. And so then with that pool, here's the analogy. Prior to the tranquility, and I, when I, in, in my earlier days as a meditation instructor, I used to bring this little jar filled with a, a mercury powdered solution. You'd shake it up and I'd put it on a, on a table next to me and it's all cloudy and yucky. And then within 20 minutes or so, it would, it, the sedimentation it would drop down. And now it's just completely clear. So that's another analogy. And so with that shamatha, now you can see, right? Now you can look deep into the mind before you couldn't. Too many waves, too windy, too much junk, too much sedimentation. Can't see squat. That's why you start with shamatha. But once it settles and it's clear, then you can see, then you can look. That's what's going to liberate you. You know, that's where Vipassana comes into play. That was the great contribution of the Buddha, by the way. Shamatha was not discovered by the Buddha. He kind of inherited that. His great contribution, roughly speaking, was insight meditation, Vipassana. That's what led to his awakening. So something like that. That's a great question. And good for you. Just nurture it now. Excellent. Okay, I've got uh, one more writing question here. Okay. And then we'll go to the raised hands. Uh, during the pandemic, I've been watching our two-year-old grandson. When I put him down for naps, I ask him to try to remember what happens when his eyes are closed and he is asleep. Most of the time he can't remember, but when he does and I ask him what he sees, he says the wind. It is such an unusual answer since all the dream recall I have is usually objects. It made me wonder whether a two-year-old who is not completely solidified in dualistic thinking would dream differently. Is yeah, that possible? For sure. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. 
they absolutely positively dream di differently. Um, and this, this is a really interesting topic. And actually the fact that he says wind is also, well, that's really interesting. Because in Vajrayana language, um, the contents of mind, thought, dream, are literally talked about as movement of mind connected to wind. So that's also really interesting, but definitely they, they dream differently. And in fact, again, if you believe in this, just to show you how rich this can be, very often, especially the really advanced meditators, what are called the tukus, up until roughly around age seven, um, which is interesting in Piaget's former operational development stage, um, up until around then, these realized masters actually have dreams often of their previous lives, um, their most recent life in particular. And so absolutely for sure that they dream differently than we do. Blind people dream differently than we do. Um, animals dream differently than we do. And so I'm not quite sure where else to run with that. But uh, uh, first of all, it's fantastic that you would invite that type of kind of uh, playful investigation. I mean, children have very interesting access to pre-conceptual and pre-egoic states of mind. W quick insert, these are not necessarily spiritual. And this is the great gift of Ken Wilber. He has a really interesting and very helpful riff on the pre-trans fallacy. And I believe, uh, I'm not entirely sure, I wonder if Lynn or Jose are listening, maybe they can help me. I think this was originally in Eye to Eye, his book. Um, I just throw that into the mix that, that on one level, what children experience is fantastic. It's, it's really blissful. It's pre-egoic. Pre-egoic sounds a lot like trans-egoic, but it's not. And so therefore, what we don't want to do, this is a sidebar, but I think it's an important one to your question, is we don't want to go on to some kind of regressive journey to some primordial Garden of Eden, i.e. represented by so-called enlightened children. Well, how enlightened are children when the terrible twos come on and the sense of self and other is more articulated and everything's me, 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 mine, mine, mine. Not a whole lot of enlightenment there. Animals as well. People often say, well, animals are living in the present moment. On one level, that's true. But does that mean that they're completely compassionate? That everything they do is for the benefit of others? Go to the uh, Savannah, go to the Serengeti to see that that ain't the way it's so. So I, I throw that into the mix just to say that a lot of people confuse, conflate pre-egoic with trans-egoic states. Um, and the pre-trans fallacy, Ken writes about that beautifully. But in short, unless there's a follow-up to that, that's what comes to mind around that. That's pretty cool, that's awesome. There's uh, one other chat question I'll read because I've seen it pop up once or twice now. <laughs> okay. uh, I, of I often quite enjoy my distractions. How, how do I discern whether they're related to some scars or whether I'm just enjoying life? What a great question. Yeah, I quite enjoy my distractions as well. Um, but, you know, I don't want to distract myself out of a fully participatory engaged life. So not all distractions, connecting distractions to samskaras is, 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 the term is they're not isomorphic. It's not the same thing. Um, we're talking about two different issues here. But in terms of the distraction thing altogether, hey, I, I, I'm not completely distraction free. I love a good movie. I love whatever. But what I simply try to do now with maybe perhaps a heightened sense of awareness is um, I'm a little bit more conscious of my um, 
desire for mindlessness, for distraction. And I have to say, in you know, decades of doing this work, I find myself less and less interested in that. It just it doesn't entertain me as it once did before. The word entertainment has a very interesting etymology. Literally means something like to hold between. It's beautiful. To hold between. Entertainment holds something between me and reality. And we usually put that in between because reality is usually too difficult to digest. So there's nothing inherently wrong with the play of the mind or whatever we call distraction. The, the so-called problem becomes our addiction to it, that we somehow think that's what's fundamentally real, that that somehow comprises our happiness. So, you know, the whole idea for me is not to become like some hardcore Nazi about, oh, I've got to be mindful and present and non-distracted all the time. Um, it's a, it's a, perhaps a question of being um, mindfully mindless, <laughs> mindfully distracted. Like, oh, tonight, you know, I worked really hard today. I'm going to mindfully watch this movie with my margarita. Hey, I mean, what's wrong with that, right? So. I'm not sure, I, I'm not making the connection between distraction and samskara because they're not quite the same thing, so. There's uh, one more write-in question from the chat I wanna read, then I promise we'll get to the raised hands. Um, okay. Do the samskaras manifest as wrathful deities in the bardo after death? Oh, geez, who asked that? Great Norbu. question. Huh? Norbu. Norbu, yeah, good for you, Norbu. Exactly, exactly, yep. I'll just say yes, exactly. The 51 samskaras. Again, this is what happens, especially in the luminous bardo or dharmata. You meet your maker, mind is laid bare. And the, the classic 51 samskaras are revealed as the, the 51 wrathful deities. Bingo, good for you. Cool, right. okay. And now to the raised hands. First up is Prem. Okay, hi Prem. Hi Andrew, nice to see you. My Sanskrit I'm teacher. <laughs> you're the best. You're the best people and you're the best teacher. You're the master teacher. Ah. And looking forward to this weekend. Yay. I'm taking your program. Thank you. Thank and you. I know Thank you need a break, but I did sort of, without asking your permission, post the links to the Yogaville program, which. Oh, totally. Yeah, sure. Okay. And great. Uh, even though it looks like Yogaville will still be closed, but we can take it online and sure. we can create a beautiful retreat um whole program with supplemental yeah let's hope so yeah awesome okay so my question comes from a lot of people who know i'm studying the bardo teachings with you are asking okay i've got a couple of people who work in hospice and they're saying what do we do or advise people who want to do this kind of you know mindful conscious dying process yet they have a lot of pain or are being offered morphine and things like that so that's one part of it what do you do with pain medication which most usually makes you more out yeah. of it yep. okay. and then the other part is what about people who don't have i don't want to say luxury that seems a little insensitive of you know sort of time to know you're dying, but might die in their sleep, or you know, obviously, yeah, you know, dream yoga and all of that. But if they're not big practitioners of that, is there anything you can sort of do preparatively that they can do, or that you can do? Yeah, I, I guess both. Well, again, I, 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 this may seem a little bit cold, 
Um, but again, that's one reason the truths are called noble truths because sometimes they're a little bit non-negotiable and like, hey, sorry. Um, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from here. Chagdug Chuku Rinpoche said something to the effect of like, when you have to go to the bathroom, it's too late to build the latrine. <laughs> um, so that's his gritty way of talking about it. You know, generally, this is why you want to put the fear of karma hmm. into one. You can't, in this tradition and other non-theistic traditions, you can't put the fear of a creator principle, a God, because we don't maintain the necessity of a creator principle. Using Occam's razor, you don't need one. You can describe reality without one. So playfully, what I, what I do is you can't put the fear of God into you, into you because there isn't one. Even though there are many gods, there isn't one reified, anthropomorphic, omnipotent, omnipresent. No, I don't think so. At least not in my worldview. But what you can do and should do is put the fear of karma into you. Put the fear of theodicy. Put the fear of eschatology. These are big terms of like you are going to reap what you sow not the best thing to say to someone who's dying. <laughs> this is something that we should work with. When someone is dying, this becomes really tricky. It depends on whether they're open to it. It depends on whether they're a Buddhist. It depends on whether they're a spiritual practitioner or not. If they're none of those, then the best thing you can do as a caretaker is just love them and just support them and do whatever you can possibly do to help them relax. Even if it means, and this may seem antithetical, even if it means supporting them in their view of death that may not be in harmony with yours. You do not want to come in there as a know-it-all. You know that. Um, you basically want to do, here's, here's, what you, the, the, here's the image I've created, Prem. It's like, you know, the feeling that you get when someone you really care about, some big burly person that really loves you, just gives you a big, warm bear hug. You know how that feels? You know yeah. how that feels? That's the feeling that you want to create. You want to give them a big spiritual, physical, whatever hug. You want to give, you want to create that type of environment, that hug, hugging environment, holding environment mm. that allows them to just open, release, and let go. That's what you want to do. And within that, kind of basic parameter, then it, you have to figure that out. Um, now, with that said, for those who um, may be available, um, and I'll get back to your morphine question, there's a ton of things you can do um, as they're dying from your side and after they're dying from your side. So much so that I'm, I'm going to refer you to my book for that, because I have two big sections about, well, what can you do? Well, there's just a ton you can do. So I'll let that part go. The other thing with the medications is a really interesting one. Um, you know, if you work with dying people, palliative care physicians, every one of them will tell you that morphine is a godsend, a Buddha send. Um, you want to, according to good palliative spiritual care, you want to create a quality of mind that's kind of not too tight, not too loose. You don't want the person to be in too much screaming pain because that can predispose you towards certain um, somewhat untoward transitional states. You don't wanna to be too doped up because that can, they say, predispose you towards animal realm states. 
And so this is where palliative care really comes in. And this is where advanced directives really come in, where you say in your advanced directives, I'm okay with a little pain. I do not want to be totally doped up. I want to be as conscious as I can without screaming pain. And palliative care providers can do that for you. That's their business. Um, so somewhere in there is to get that middle way theme, not too tight, not too loose. So something like that. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. You know, just finishing um, Mingyu Rinpoche's book, In Love with the World, which yeah. you recommended. It's just fabulous. Isn't and it amazing? It's, amazing. it's incredible, yeah. incredible. And what he describes in the cremation ground. Yeah astonishing no, and happy masterpiece Woo. and and with and with his pain level that's what really also keyed me into okay so yeah we don't have to run away from the pain he just he worked with it and yeah. as you shared about your experience with the uh, kidney stones Woo. Yeah. you know that whole book that whole book that his whole journey is a reverse meditation that mm. whole book is one long wow brilliant exposition on the power of reverse meditation. So yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. Thank cool. you. Okay. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up is Stephanie. Hello. Hi. Andrew. Oh, I don't see you yet. That's okay. I see you. That's oh, all. There, that you are. there you are. Um, Wow, uh, I so appreciated all your opening remarks because it was just, you answered or at least touched on a lot of what I wanted to ask about and talk yeah. about. So um, first, a super practical question about your, this upcoming weekend, which is I uh, may, I, I want to attend it, but I may not be able to do just the mornings. I may be able to do the afternoons, evenings, but not the mornings. So is there I mean, it, one, is it, does it make sense to just do it? And will I be able to just jump in for the afternoon? Yeah, for sure. Here's what, here's what I'm going to do, Stephanie. I'll, I'll find a way to record it. Um, I generally don't do these things, but I, I will find a way to record it. And so if you miss something after the fact, it may take a while to process it all that. We'll, we'll find a way to get it to you. Okay. Okay. And then the other thing is, so about, because I've been, uh, I want to talk about anxiety and fear. And um, an early, I think it was the first or second week of these um, gatherings that uh, I expressed being anxious and you gave me a suggestion about approaching it as like a child opening a toy box and just looking at where, you know, what is this, where is it in my body? Uh -huh. um, and, and that has been, it's been very helpful on the level, not, it doesn't necessarily make it go away, but it just right. light my attitude yeah. towards it. That's right. And, um, and it's uh, less problematic. So it's Perfect. just like, oh, there's my anxiety because Lord knows even just to ask this question, I get anxious. I mean, all the time. It's, it's like it's, it's in and out all the time, like a cat or something. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, that was helpful. And also the, even, also even the one breath meditations, I've been oh. doing those. Sometimes I'll, I'll just remember, oh yeah, just do, do a one breath. And even that also seems to, help anxiety you know it seems connected and it just so that's good all good where where I, my question really is is um further into fear uh more deep into for example the entire structure of a life or something i mean not that there's anything wrong with my life was great but i also recognize and question how did I get here? <laughs> like David Byrne. 
David, exactly. David Burns thinks the same thing. How did I get here? How did I get here? So, and some things, I mean, you know, certain lines can be drawn through psychology or whatever, those kinds of narratives, but that's also a closed system and not, and, and that's useful for certain things, but not everything. And I do feel like, uh, what do you do when you, it's like you're, it, you know that, how do I express this question? Um, when the parts of your life where you aren't even aware that you're in prison, right. you know, and um, like you kind of obliquely see things you could, because when, when you're, it's one thing when you have a, a reactivity to a situation, for example, in a context of a relationship, something happens and there's that reactivity and then your suggestion about staying with it and this being, I'm just learning the word samskara. It's useful. Yeah. I appreciate yes. that. Super helpful. And, um, yeah. and uh, uh, so that kind of reactivity is a, is a grounding place to address and, and stay with something and release it. But just the fact, for example, just as an example, that you're even, say, in that particular relationship or the fact that you're, you know, have designed your life in a certain way, maybe there's avoidance involved, certain decisions that have been made or not made in terms of other aspects of life. I mean, I see this on a macro level as well yeah. in the world, but I'm saying, I mean, I don't, I can't even the macro level is almost overwhelming to me because I, it's that, you know, the thing about wanting to address the world from a sane place. And I, and I'm not completely insane more than as much as anybody else, right. but I recognize that we're all kind of insane and, and how to, how is, how do you free yourself from prison when you don't, know you're in it or you don't know the shape of it or you don't, you know what i'm asking kind totally, of totally totally okay yeah. okay yeah terrific what first of all what a, a great terrific um set of issues so i just wrote a couple little notes down because you pinged on some pretty cool things one really big thing again pardon the shameless self-promotion but this weekend when we talk about anxiety and fear anxiety isn't something the self has anxiety is something the self is so it's there okay. all yes. the time. It's there all the time. When you don't register it, that's just because it's covered or distracted. Anxiety is something oh. self is. Second thing is, how did you get here? Well, that's a big question. But one way you got here is your samskaras. Your, your samskaras make you. They make you now. They make you on the bardos. They're making you moment to moment. So that's that. Um, how, you know, you mentioned something about the people we bring into our lives. That's an incredibly interesting thing, especially in terms of relationships. You know, my friend Bruce Tift writes about this beautifully when, when he talks about fundamentally, and it's so lucid that we fundamentally hire people. <laughs> We're unconsciously hiring our partners, hiring our friends as unconscious ways to really play out all these unconscious processes. And so yeah. This whole thing is so incredibly interesting to me. Exactly what you're saying from a neurological level, a phenomenological level, a psychological level, yeah. a, a spiritual level. 
Yeah. How do we, how did we get here? How do we keep making and doing all the things that we do? This is a colossal question that really is the heart of the whole deconstruction project that is psycho-spiritual development. Because fundamentally what it is, Stephanie, is it's just one vikalpa, samskara, whatever you want to call it. We've got all these terms for it that are really helpful to know. It's all just one construction project on top of another. Uh, it's just one set of what are called adventitious defilements on top of another, just knowing, not knowing, not knowing, not knowing. And, and to, to the extent of, you know, here, here's, a, here's a beautiful summary statement on this. I think I've said this before, and this is where you'll see how important this is to the psycho-spiritual journey. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, beautiful statement, said, when we know the mind fully, we get beauty, the arts, and all things wondrous. When we don't know the mind, we get Auschwitz. And so what we want to do is know the mind, know the heart. If you don't know that, and we don't, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Socrates, the difference between you you and me is I know that I don't know. Most of the time we live on automatic ignorance, sleepwalking. This is what it means to be asleep. The Buddhas are the awakened ones. What does that mean for us? (laughs) We're asleep. What does that mean? It means this. And so then what we do is, what do we do with it? Well, we wake up and we grow up. We find out all these ways with, by asking these questions, you know, how did I get here? Well, there's a way to find out. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can look, you do the studies, you do the practices, and eventually all these construction projects, the prisons, we don't even know we're stuck in. They start to reveal themselves. um, And then you start to make a prison break. Um, and, and, and if we don't do that, we're just going to live our lives in total um, karmic reactive mode, completely blind to the nature of mind and reality, and just dig ourselves deeper and deeper into the grand canyon of confusion and pain. So your questions are the seed questions for the entire spiritual path. So basically, just keep going. Okay. Again. I hope to see you this weekend. <laughs> yeah, there you go. By the end of the weekend, you'll be completely... <laughs> Completely deconstructed and and ready to go. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Great question, Steph. See ya. Um, Joe Parent wrote in. He had something quick to add about the one breath. Joseph Parent. Oh, I don't want to hear from him. You can skip over him. Ah, (laughs) There he is. Oh, great photos, dude. What are you doing? What's that one, huh? Are you are you back there somewhere? (laughs) Hang on a second. Let me see what's going on here. I, I see the daughter. I see. Oh, I'm, I'm not in the picture. The larger region. Uh, yes, that's the. It was uh, in Colorado at uh, Lake Valley Golf Club, and they're looking at lightning. Wow! And, um, I thought maybe they when, were looking at one of your drives. You no, know, when he finally got uh, when the, they finally got Trungpa to come out to a golf course, he said. Oh, let's see if we can have some fun here. How about a lightning storm? <laughs> yeah, that'll perk so, you. It was an interesting time. So I just thought you'd I thought you'd enjoy that as a as no, a that's, is that, is I, that, I had two things. One was a comment on what you just said uh, for uh, that young lady's Stephanie, um, yeah. question. Where does it all begin? And you know, you've we've we've both said you know um, you know. Uh, it's turtles all the way down. And in Buddhism, we call it the no beginning time. We don't say in the beginning. 
Um, and and I, it, it uh, occurred to me something that Trungpa Rinpoche taught uh, at a seminar I was at. And I asked him, you know, um, if we are the nature, if our nature is this incredible clarity, how do we get confused? How does the confusion start? And he said, um, that inherent brilliance is, it's a right. little too brilliant. That's right. It's a little too brilliant and we kind of turn away from it and lose track. Uh, and it's like going into the movies and you know you're in the movies and then suddenly you get sucked in. So that, that was his comment on it. But I, I wanted to, uh, the only thing I wanted to um, say, uh, the young lady was talking about, and you, you often introduce the one breath meditation. So um, I've been applying that and I wanted to share that with people. Cool. It's a, uh, I call it stop, drop, and breathe. Oh, nice. You know how when you're on yeah. fire, yeah. you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll? I like that. Well, well when your mind is on fire, yeah. you should stop, drop, and, and breathe. You stop what you're doing, drop whatever the storyline is, yeah. and breathe. Um, yeah. and, and we have opportunities to do that all through the day because it, in the Zen tradition, what they had was a, uh, a temple bell. And the person in charge of ringing it was supposed to ring it randomly at times during the day, not just the, the main meditation times, but during the day. And everybody stopped whatever they were doing and whatever the, that policy was, th one breath, three breaths, seven breaths, a minute, whatever it is. And you, you just stop when that happens. And I got reminded of that with this commercial on TV for Calm, where the, it's raining and you see leaves and it has this circle that goes around for 15 seconds. Mm. And, and now I see that commercial comes on and instead of forwarding through, I just stop. That's right. Um, so we have temple bell signals all through our lives. Yeah. When the phone rings, when you get a text, when an email pops up on your computer, um, and, and when you're working on your computer and you get that terrible Instead of responding to that spinning wheel of that rainbow wheel, rainbow of death, yeah, right. You know, processing, processing, processing. Take the opportunity to meditate. Do, perfect. Do your perfect. breathing when when that happens, perfect. and the best when you're out. If you're driving, a red light. Perfect. It, it's a kind of reverse, right? Instead of being antsy when the red light's going to stop, go. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to stop, drop, and breathe. So. I, I just wanted to share, share that with people. And, and, and for, safety, for safety, when you wash your hands, count four, five, or six breaths. Yeah. And do your breathing meditation while you're washing your hands. You'd be sure that you get your hands clean and you get some breathing. That's so, beautiful. Thanks, Joe, as usual. Terrific contributions, my friend. Yeah, keep them coming, man. Love the photos, too. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Good stuff. All right, next up is uh, Lindsay S. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Um, I, I'm interested, I have a, the more you talk, the more questions I have, but I'm just going to pick one. Okay. And that is that um, I'm interested in this idea of com complicated grief, mm -hmm. or sometimes they call it complex trauma, I think. Yeah. Um, because I, had a, I have a situation like that in my life where when I was a teenager, one of my parents died suddenly. Mm. 
And I was a teenager, right? And it was 50 years ago, and there was no processing that happened, really. It was just go back to life. And then um, when I was 65, my husband of 27 years, within a week, he was gone. Oh, wow. And it wasn't like we were fighting or, you know, it was just the same kind of shock. So I, I realized that these two things are echoing and bouncing off each other. And I've been working with them in therapy, sure. trying to tease them apart. But one thing that struck me when you were talking about it is that it's, it's hard to sit, to just sit with the feelings. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? Yeah. It's hard not to go keep going back to the storyline too. And that I think makes it worse. Exactly right. That's, it. That's the practice. That's the practice. Yeah. So it's three years and I'm just starting to be able to look at yeah. look at it in some way that feels more less charged. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's really spot on. You know, I keep I keep promising and I, I and <clears throat> Joseph asked me to do it. I haven't done it yet, but this is where the crying meditation comes into play, which we haven't done yet. Um, which is where it's 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 what I learned from Zach Stein, this philosopher. It's part of the family of what I call, I, I don't call it, comes from the Mahamudra tradition, these reverse meditations. And yes. it's, a way, it's a way within a practice environment to bring in really difficult emotional states. Uh -huh. And fundamentally, it's a type of permission practice. Permission to be a broken human being. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, feeling, feeling crappy, feeling destroyed, feeling broken, I mean, in spiritual jargon, that doesn't create karma. Maybe the fruition of certain types of karma, but feeling crappy does not create karma. And so having a, a permission practice with something like crying meditation allows you to just go directly into that. Again, not indulging it, that the other extreme is becoming kind of a spiritual masochist. Right. And again, you have to kind of titrate that as well. And so we, we, we play between that and the usual storylines. The storylines are what keep the samskara fed. So yeah, what yeah. you said is just spot on. You wake down, you stay with that feeling, and then you allow your body to just do the beauty of its processing. Your body knows how to handle it, but there's so much adverse conditioning, habituation, to getting out of that space that this is why, this is a warrior type practice. I mean, to sit in that crematorium, so to speak, whew, sounds good on paper, not that great an experience. And um, armed with this view, armed with these types of meditations, then we can allow ourselves the permission to be human, to be just, you know, a chocolate mess. And just say, that's just, that's just part of the samsara condition. My heart and mind are big enough to say yes to this. And then eventually, everything self-liberates. Nothing persists because it's empty. This is the good news of emptiness and impermanence. Everything eventually self-liberates if we just let it. Um, and so, you know, easier said than done, but I so appreciate the fact that you're doing this in conjunction with therapy, um, also in conjunction with, with therapists who specialize in trauma, because yeah. deep, deep trauma is deep issue. And I, I'm not even going to put my toes into those waters without a whole other set of things we're not even going to get at. But I think you get where I'm coming from here, hopefully. Okay. I have one more question. Sure. 
during the period after my husband left, I dissociated for like eight yeah. hours. Yeah. I just, so is that just be, becoming unconscious? How do you interpret that? Yeah, it's just, it's just the light's too bright. Um, the light's too bright. And then you just, again, it, it, we just do it. We do what we have to do. When children, you know, this is really, really damaging for children yeah. when they don't, they literally physiologically do not have the neurological structure to contain these types of experiences. And they, they can dissociate to such an extent that you get multiple personality disorders. You get a really fragmented aspect of self that becomes so powerful, it's actually in another identity. So, you know, yes, exactly. So sometimes that light is just so intense, you, you just dissociate. And, and, and now you can, you know, look at that with a new light and say, that's the best I could do at that time. There's nothing, you know, you did the best you could do. Now with a little bit of perspective, you can go back and try to, to digest that experience, metabolize it, because you have a little bit of time, a little bit of space, you've got the support, and you can actually go in. Um, but yeah, that's okay. Kind of, um, Thank you, man. Take care. See you. Thanks for sharing. All right. Next, I'll give the audio to Vicki. Hi, Vicki. Hey. Andrew, I really want you to say hi, my friend. Hi. Hi, my friend. <laughs> I love that. To say that I was with you the last two weekends, and I have really deep, deep gratitude for all Thank the things. You. The reverse meditation was unforgettable, and it's very powerful stuff, isn't it? Yeah, definitely taken into my life. So, thank you. Welcome, welcome. My question, um, in many ways, resembles Stephanie just asked, Was that Stephanie? Anyway, whoever the last person was. No, Lindsay, sorry. Um, but I, I, it's, it feels very embarrassing to me to ask this, and so that's probably a good reason to ask. And even if you say the exact same things you just said to Okay, Lindsay. to Lindsay, okay. So I'm going to describe a particular situation, but it happens more often than I wish. That something happens to me, I have... Um, mostly feelings of deep hurt. And um, then the stories start. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I sit with it all. And I go as much as I can, certainly, into my body to feel it in my body. And um, one of the things actually that helps me the most when I'm really stuck is doing Tonglen for yeah. myself. Beautiful. And that always brings me to tears yeah. and to a sense of um, incredible compassion for myself. Yeah. I find myself so down in the mud with this. So I, I, I feel like I have insights and I have insights about the origins of trauma from you know, way back in my childhood. But then when I'm around the person, you know, then I see the person always very dear to me. Um, yeah. Who, who has done whatever that I get hurt, that I hurt myself. Triggered, yep. I have no interest in letting go. Right. right. I just don't want to let go. I just, it's just like, I want to, I want to hurt him. I want yep. to yep. So feel the place in me that can be cruel. Yep. I don't, I don't act out any of that. Thank heavens for that. Yeah. 
karma for that, but I just don't want to let go. And yeah. anything you could say, thanks. Yeah, yeah. First of all, thanks for having the courage to to share that. That's that's um, that's quote unquote great. Yeah, you know, this is this is isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting for me? What you might want to examine is, you know. One of the reasons we do like remember in, in kind of preparation for the reverse meditation, we work with open awareness practice. That's a, and also a super powerful practice that, that painfully reveals just how sticky the mind is. And sometimes what's particularly interesting in cases like this is the mind will stick to, um, you know, somewhat damaging types of situations because fundamentally underneath it all, and this is what perhaps you can look at as a deep kind of inquiry exploration is that something, something, even something bad, so to speak, bad is better than nothing. And so there's still a grasping going on, um, even though you're grasping onto electric barbed wire or whatever you want to call it. And so then what I might invite as a, as a real, question is what exactly within your body because you're already somewhat sensitized to this what exactly and where exactly is this sensation called bad taking place um, because what we fundamentally want to do even with a situation like that is just like i was mentioning at the outset is deconstruct it um, bring it back to its foundational roots, which you will find is um, embodied raw sensory data, raw sensory awareness. We want to take it back down to that. And so therefore, one way to work with it is just to augment what you're doing. So when you're, again, when you're feeling this so-called bad feeling, first of all, look at how even the label bad, I'm, I'm more and more interested in, in how language is so central to the samsaric condition, how language reifies, how language gives power to objects that are not there. So even the word bad reifies a process that is just that, it's just a process. And so when you, when you feel something to which you append the label bad, use that as a marker to investigate you know, what is really going on here. What is the underlying ingredient that ends up with this uh, label that I call bad, and then just deconstruct back down to that. And then to whatever extent you can, take ownership of that, stay with that. In conjunction with it is exactly like what Lindsay was, was intimating, and I'm a big fan of this, work with a therapist, work with a skillful contemplative therapist, work with someone that can help you create, you know, you have a container. I am a big, big fan of therapy. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, Everybody, everybody should be in therapy, really. So I think if you do that and you're armed with these skill sets, slowly, 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 through repetition, repetition, you know, repetition got you into this mess, so to speak. Repetition, continuing to reify, continuing to fall into these samskaric patterns, that's what keeps it alive. So, you know, we want to now use the power of repetition in our advantage to our favor and saying, I need to go into this again. I need to go into this again. I need to go into this yet again. And every time you do it, the sting is going to slowly get pulled out. The samskara is slowly going to be purified. And eventually you're just going to be left with this kind of neutral energy. 
but it ain't neutral yet because it's still affected with all these these defilements. Um, and so, you know, easier said than done, but this can arm you with the skill set that if you hang with it and you're patient, sopa, you're really, you're patient, you're kind to yourself, you do tongling for yourself, and you allow yourself to dip your toes back in again and again and again. And then also another, again, very subtle invitation for examination and exploration is notice how you, when you appropriate that experience, again, there's that very subtle contraction taking place. There's a very subtle referencing. That referencing itself is creating the sense, the sense of self altogether. So even though it feels crappy on a very deep level, it's working for you. On a very deep level, I mean, it's working for that bandwidth of you, let's say that. It's working for the egoic part of you. And so we can just bring all, you know, these, these quite remarkable teachings from both psychological and spiritual traditions to very kindly, gently, patiently, with a sense of humor and levity. You know, don't take any of this stuff too seriously, right? Just go back in, go back in, go back in, explore, be interested. Where do I feel it? All the stuff you were talking about, and you just like my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, often said to us, again, 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 you just do it. And every time you do it, you're going to take the sting out of it. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Hang with it. And thanks for that. Thanks for that offering. It's really, it's courageous. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Okay. We got time for a couple more. Great. Uh, next is Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Hiya. So, Hi. Uh, um, it's just uh, going back to um, a question that came up uh, earlier. And um, somebody was asking about Shamata. And you were saying about um, Alan Wallace's book and talking about the eight stages. So is that relating to... Um, so I've got this, it's, there's a few parts to this little question. So first of all, is that relating to, to the jhanas? And, mm. um, and if it is, so I've, I've had some experience of jhanas. I was going into them like naturally, but, the, but I never really understood what they were. And when I started reading more about them, there's, there's names in there like infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, uh, neither perception or non-perception. So these sound very grand. Like if you actually thought Ajana was literally having an experience of infinite space, then is that how that kind of jhana would feel like? Or is this just a very grand name for another level of absorption? And, okay. mm -hmm. and also, um, when, since doing my Mahamudra practice, I find it actually, it's now difficult to get into those states because it seems to me like it's doing opposite thing like in the the jhanas i was feeling very absorbed and very contracted and in mahamudra it's more like open and all-encompassing so i feel like i can't really get into jhanas anymore so just what are your thoughts on that Is yeah that correct? yeah very subtle very nice yeah you know i would take refuge in the mahamudra because i think what you're saying is spot on Yes, the nine stages of shamatha are connected to, the, to these um, meditative absorption states, which have tremendous provisional validity. 
And the provisional part is really important to understand because, um, because these states of absorption can be so delicious, we can mistake them for um, enlightenment. They're not. They're just uh, really very subtle degrees of pacification that are absolutely sumptuous. They're delicious states of mind. And they're well enough and good enough in their own, but how delicious is pain? How delicious is death? How delicious is old age sickness? How delicious is what's happening in the world today? So these states of absorption have their place, but in the, in the, especially in the Tibetan and Mahamudra tradition, there's no traffic with these things because they're high forms of distraction or they can be. If they're not related to properly, these become among the most serious of all spiritual traps because you end up just drowning in a, in a, in a mental ocean of milk and honey. And so, um, so much to say here, you know, on one level, Patro Rinpoche, Kempo Rinpoche and others say that when you're in these deep states of absorption, you literally destroy them. You nurture your meditation by destroying it. Um, destroying your attach, attachment to these delicious states of mind. So take, put your eggs in the Mahamudra basket um, because exactly in the way you say, they will then recontextualize, reframe, and help you let go of these delicious states of mind. Because otherwise, you're going to be drifting off into God realm states that according to the cosmological approaches will eventually lead you, in fact, to God realm ontological spaces. And so they're great to know, they're great to experience, they're fantastic, but that's what makes them so problematic because they are so fantastic. Um, and so uh, I'm not sure where else to run with that, but your question is a very sensitive one and it's a great one. And the fact that somehow doing your Mahamudra almost doesn't allow you to go back into those absorption states is, I, I think that's just beautiful because that's the power of the Mahamudra to create a quality of one taste, the great equanimity to whatever arises. So you're in the state of beyond perception and non-perception. Can you relate to that in exactly the same way you relate to the hell realm? The Buddhas can, the Buddhas can. No preference for samsara or nirvana. And so we tend to go after nirvana, our version, let's say this, our version of nirvana, just as an antidote for feeling crappy for so long. We want to feel good. Again, the path is not about feeling good unless you talk about basic goodness. The, mm -hmm. the path is about getting real. So, you know, be really wary, really wary of these uh, absorption states because Taisitu Rinpoche says these are the, the most dangerous of all spiritual traps. And I think you can see why. So, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, thanks very much. Can I just ask another quick question on a related? Sure, you just another... did, so you can ask a third. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm just being a smart. Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Very good. Um, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, what's, I'm delaying now because I, yeah. I can't think of the question. Right, self-liberation. Um, so, if something were to self-liberate, how would you experience it? it? Would it pop, like pop and disappear? Or can it self-liberate and still be there? But it's self-liberating in the fact that you're you're in you're aware, basically. Well, I think when we talk about self-liberation here, you know, um, you're, you're basically allowing it, whatever it is, to just simply manifest without appropriation, manifest without um, an appropriate relationship of either grasping, you know, passion, aggression, or ignorance. So self-liberation just simply means allowing things to arise 
abide and then eventually self and eventually cease. And so um, I'm not quite sure where else to go with that. You know, you're simply just letting things be. Um, the Beatles were onto something there. You're just allowing whatever phenomena to arise. If you just let it arise without um, getting in the way, it will self-liberate. I mean, eventually everything self-liberates. Um, we just need to get out of the way and let it do that. So does that help? Does that make sense? Or well, kind of, but my experience is that something could self-liberate after a second or it could self-liberate after half an hour. So I'm thinking if it's taken half yeah. an hour, then is that still okay? Is it still okay? What you, well, I mean, is it like, has it not created karma? Well, if you're sitting there keeping it alive, you know, remember, remember what I said, your body, um, within 90 seconds, your body will purify all the biochemical markers of an emotional state. So if you're keeping something alive, even, even biologically after 90 seconds, you're the one that's doing CPR on it. You're the one that's putting the, the fibrillator on it. Um, and so something's, again, I, I'm not going to sit here and do the metrics for you, but I think you get the idea. You know, this is where it gets very, very subtle because, uh, you know, allowing these things to fully be without an appropriate relationship, that's easy, easy to say. That's a really mature quality of the path where you can just simply be with anything that arises without the stickiness. And if you do that, then again, you know, self-liberation within a second, self-liberation within 90 seconds, I can't put a number on what you're referring to. But fundamentally, if, if you simply allow it to arise, notice the parts of you that maybe don't want to let it go or maybe even want to push it away, just keep cutting that, cutting that, cutting that, letting go. And then you're just left with the free-flowing energy of life experience. You know, then you're left with ta-ta-ta, uh, -ta, that, thusness, suchness, isness, to which you can't even put a label. And that's really the point. Then you mm -hmm. just, you know, you're just hanging out in that endless process of becoming there is no being there, there I mean, nothing that when you say it, there isn't even an it. So when some, when it self liberates, there is no it to self liberate. There's only processes to recognize. Um, and so the more we recognize that, we, the more we realize there, there is no it, there is no being. There's just this constant becoming unfolding, flowing action, whatever you want to call it. You can't put a word on it. And then we learn how to ride, surf, swim, whatever metaphor you want to use on that whatever that is. You can say energy, you can say awareness, you can say mind. They're all just maps. None of it really describes what you actually experience. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, cool. Maybe, oh, maybe one last one, because I, I try to cap it at the hour and a half mark. Sure, and we just got Zoom bombed again in our chat. So. Oh. oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> um, all right, great. Well, next up is Lynn and uh, Lynn, you have the audio. Okay, thanks. Uh, first, I'd really like to say thank you to the people that raised the questions about trauma and dissociation. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, appreciate your answers, Andrew. Um, but my question, oh, sometime in the last few weeks, you've brought up the concept, this was relative to spiritual teachers, Okay. that they can be awakened or have a great deal of accomplishment, but not be grown up. Right. 
Do you remember that? Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of my big rants these last couple of years. I can rant <laughs> on that. I can rant on that for hours. So uh, what, and what I was going to ask for was um, just references. Are there, you know, like particular books or somebody that's oh, discussing Lordy. this? Yeah, there's tons. You know, the integral people speak a lot with it. My friend Dustin DePerna wrote a book. Uh, give me two seconds. It's literally right around the corner. Hold on. Let me get the title. Okay. Yeah, it's called Streams of Wisdom, um, Dustin DePerna, um, kind of an academic approach. You know, um, uh, oh my gosh, so many people write about it. Ken Wilber has written a ton about it. Um, you can look up what's called the Wilbur Combs, Wilbur-C-O-M-B-S, Wilbur Combs Lattice. Um, that's with it. You'll, you can read about it in uh, Integral Spirituality, that's a big, um, thick, masterpiece of a book by Ken Wilber. Um, what else comes to mind? Uh, John Wellwood in his book Towards the Psychology of Awakening, he's a person who coined waking up growing up. He starts to talk about it. Um, that's probably enough. I mean, that's probably a, a good month's worth of reading. Okay. You know, I think it's, this is, the, you know, this is a super important topic, in my opinion, super important. And so, again, that's why I'm a big fan of integral theory, integral approaches, because they, they have this kind of explanatory power. Otherwise, it's inexplicable. Otherwise, I, I can't, I have personally yet to see any other map that comes close to the explanatory power of the integral approach here. So those sources could help you. Great. Right. Thank you. Welcome. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming by. Really, I appreciate it. It's been so much fun. Ten weeks, and we're, and we're not dead yet. So I'd like to sign off at the hour and a half mark. Um, those of you who may still be in line, Andy, if there's any way to maybe somehow, if the Zoom bomb didn't destroy that, you know, I, I hate to keep people hanging, but I also need to end. Um, we can maybe give those people priority um, when we come around next time.